1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm a senior lecturer in modern history at Macquarie University. I usually say in sunny Sydney, but I don't think I've seen the sun in about a month. Thank you, La Nina. <laughs> I'm here today speaking with Samir Chopra. He's a professor of philosophy at Brooklyn College and at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and he's the author of a really um, this a really rich n- new book called "The Evolution of a Cricket Fan: My Shapeshifting Journey." It's out from Temple University Press in twenty twenty one. Hello, Samir.
0: Uh, hi, Keith. Thanks very much for having me on,
1: and thanks for joining us. I I, um, I always ask people the same question, and that's um, how you developed this project, but in a little way, in a little bit ways, um, your book explains how you, how you wrote the book. And the whole book is a bit about how you wrote the book. Um,
0: yeah, it's true.
1: I, I'm wondering if you can tell us, you know, how without having to tell us everything, how you decided to write the book, what, wh- why did you develop the project?
0: Well, you know, as the as the title of the book suggests, uh, you know, it's sort of a little grandiose, to be honest, sometimes when I hear it, uh, the evolution of a cricket fan. Um, but I do think that as I watched cricket over the years, I noticed that there was a kind of an interplay between the game and myself, and that I understood the game through, through coming to understand myself, and I came to understand myself through coming to understand the game. And... I think as as the years went by and as i watched cricket i think i felt like um there were some ways in which i had to try and do justice to the changes that had taken place within me and within my understanding of the game so the book is kind of an attempt to capture that it's um you know there's a particular kind of journey which is i think sort of a um you know fairly sort of archetypal journey you know the journey of the immigrant right because i grew up in india but I now live in the United States. I spent a couple of years in Australia, so I'm a displaced person. And I, I continue to watch this game and follow the game while I was displaced through the displacement. And it informed the sense of homes and identities as I found as an immigrant. Um, and so I think the, the book is an attempt to try and do justice to the changing identities of an immigrant, to the changing identities of an immigrant as he sees them tracked, not just in his change of residence, but also in the way that he understands the game, which has kind of remained a kind of invariant for him, even as places, times and spaces kind of change around him. So I think that's one way trying to take a stab at why I wrote the book or what the book is trying to capture.
1: Yeah. I mean, the book, the book for me, like it's, it's, one of the reasons I found it really compelling is because it defies genre in some ways. Like I'm reading it (laughs) and I'm like, is this a memoir? Is this an autoethnography? Is this exile literature? Is this a philosophical text? Sometimes it has the, 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 the elements of every one of those things. Sometimes, you know, page to page you're flipping it and you're, you're moving quickly or sometimes slowly depending on kind of your tone. So I wondered, you know, how, how you decided to, write it that way was that just the way it came naturally or did you did you try to struggle with these different forms as you were writing or
0: you know um one of the most common critiques made of my writing when i was when i was in graduate school was that i was all over the place and perhaps, I'm, <laughs> perhaps i'm still all over the place but i do think that you're interdisciplinary was, <laughs> yes Yes, I think that's the I think that's the preferred method of describing myself now. I think it's certainly how I would sell myself in the uh, political economy of the university. <laughs> but I do, but I do think that you are on to two things that are important there. One is that there are many different voices, and I think many different ways to try and do to try and capture. What the cricket fan or the sports fan's experiences are when you make them sufficiently rich by adding these details that provided context to the sporting experience. So it lands up being all these things you mentioned. It is memoir, it is like autoethnography. Um, you know, in some ways, in order to talk about this, I have to talk about the cricket fan in India, I have to talk about the international student, I have to talk about these certain sociological categories. So, you know, to try and illuminate them and how they. Um, interact with the sociological category of the cricket fan. It's historical. So there's, you know, there's history. There's a, it's it's autobiographical because I felt that was the best way to illuminate something from the inside out. Because, you know, I, I often feel feel like journalists and writers and players just keep on talking about the cricket fan. And I feel like or like cricket literature has, yeah, there is some fan literature, but I feel like too often we're just kind of reduced to sort of ciphers, right? So I wanted something that would be memoirish precisely for that reason, because I wanted to say that, you know, watching cricket is not just that simple and it can't be. And here's, and here's testimony to that fact. So it's all of those things. And I think, uh, you know, all of those categories that I think you mentioned, and it's it's definitely, also, I think the, the genre that I perhaps felt most comfortable with was to be, memoirish was to be autobiographical um, because I felt that's the that's what I knew best. You know that 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 uh, you know that biblical injunction translated into into writing advice, you know, no man can give that which is not his, right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel like I could write on cricket from the outside. It had to be kind of from the inside out and and especially the you know the kinds of cricketing experiences and my locations at the time that prompted me to finally start putting, you know, hands to keyboard and to actually start writing this thing. I think they very much, you know, were ensured that it would be autobiographical. I sort of began by recalling childhood memories. In fact, you know, you know, if you want, if I wanted to get even a little bit more autobiographical, I would say in some ways I was trying to recover memories of my childhood in India, and so I started off by writing these just just what I remembered of watching cricket early and and started with that so and <laughs> there was almost, you know um, you know kind of a note of that little bit of the David Copperfield in there that I'm just going to start telling it from the beginning right
1: yeah um, yeah that's the
0: only, you know
1: no definitely I well, I, I was wondering and I guess I should say and I was wondering um as I was reading it you know in some ways you were you're talking about the particular and in some ways you're talking about the general like you 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 using your autobiography to inform our understandings of categories like oh cricket tragic or indian fan or voluntary exile or patriot overseas you know, these different categories but i did feel like you are also a very exceptional cricket fan one the book is so rich in visual imagery like i there are certain parts where you're describing games and i was like I don't think I have, I've been to a lot of sporting events and I don't think I have a a 10th of the amount of, you know, memory of the event as you do. Like when you're talking about (laughs) the first time you were in, I will mispronounce uh, Jawaharlou Nehru Stadium. Yeah. You know, and you're describing that it's so rich, but you're also a, a very in some ways very um, typical cricket fan and that you're so fascinated with the statistical. So having those two things yes. together, I think is very unusual. So I wondered how, you know, are you, are you the exceptional cricket fan or am I just a cricket ignorant <laughs> in some ways?
0: Um, well, it you know, it's interesting you say that I, I, I you know, I think if you see the forewords and the preface to the book that are, you know, uh, the blurbs or the, the forward by by Mukul Kesavan, you know he you know he does say something like, well you know we really have this kind of uh, you know this exceptional case of the cricket you know of the cricket tragic at hand here in this book, and it's you know all laid out for us to see. And you know many of my friends will say that to me, you know they'll say things like, man, um, I've seen a lot of people into cricket, man, but you're you're out there. Uh, <laughs> so this, there's definitely a sense of that. And I think it's because I have let cricket into my life. I have kind of let it just into my spaces. But, you know, I, I'm not, I I know, I I don't have as big a cricket book collection as you know lots of other people do. I don't travel as much, you know, there's all those things. There's just a way it's kind of got an emotional hold on me. So sometimes my following of the game is obsessive, but I think, uh, you know, it was, it's tapered off in its own way as my other responsibilities and interests have grown but i think the i think i think the particular in the general and the or the or the particular in the in the general and the general and the particular interplay that you mentioned i think was really crucial in this because yes i think what i wanted to say was something like i feel as i navigate my way through cricket literature and the game i feel this this disjuncture between this thing that i imagine myself to have such an intimate relationship with, but which remains curiously uninformed about me. And in some ways I felt like I had to add my voice to cricket literature to illuminate just the inner world of one fan to perhaps make clear why the game is as rich as as it is, because it is our imagination that is informing the game through the players through the writers through those who watch it and you know cricket does have quite a uniquely i would say (laughs) engaged and connected and perhaps you might even call it obsessive following cricket fans are quite Mm -hmm. intensely cricket fans i mean i think they're present in every sport but i think a certain kind of a certain kind of you know a certain kind of persona a certain kind of history a certain kind of location connects with certain kind of dramas at, at the center of cricket yeah, and well, they just, yeah. um, and they enable us to soar and find, you know, imaginative spaces within the game that people around us might not even be aware of, you know. That's yeah. Um, well,
1: I I don't think anyone. I mean, you rarely hear that people say rugby tragic or you know.
0: It's, yes, yes, yes. It,
1: it's true. I hope I hope you don't think it too grand a compliment. You said oh you think the title's grand, eloquent. But I, when I was reading the book, I thought of C.L.R. James, and you mentioned that in the middle of the book. But I, I, I wonder if if that provided a little bit of a model for what you're doing, too. And maybe that's more of a comment than a question. And we'll move on to Genesis and Miss Jenny in a second. But I did want to say, oh, this reminded me like a lot of CLR James. And so I'm thinking now of some students I know working on cricket projects, and I'm going to suggest that they read your book as well.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Well, uh, that's, uh, you know, even to be, um... You know, as the old um, humble acknowledgement of that compliment goes, you know, to be mentioned in, um, you know, that same context is flattering, of course. And I think C.L.R. James is an inspiration in the sense that he is, you know, as he says, "What do they of cricket know? Who only cricket know?" And I, I think I wholeheartedly agree. And I think part of the inspiration for writing this book was that there is something going on in the watching of the game, which is a kind of a collective you know it's almost like you know there's something durkheimian about the cricket game you get there there is a collective spectacle there is a collective understanding mm-hmm. that you sense that other people share with you which then informs your understanding of what is happening while you're at the, at that ritual and i think that's um, you know that that just that just tells me there's much more going on here than just people running around in whites <laughs> smacking you know <laughs> a ball with a piece of wood obviously right i mean yeah. there's there's, well, an, there's an investment of meaning there
1: that was one of the great things about the book actually and then i, I promise i will turn to that first uh, section here in a second but one of the great things about the book is that you were able to tie because it's autobiographical you were able to tie both the you know high politics of cricket the the, the world cups uh, um the 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 big test matches but you were also really interested in um you know, your your local cricket match that you're playing in Mossman, you know, um, that you're yes. playing in that also sh- shapes you, but is shaped by the forces around it. Um, yes, yeah, so I, yeah. I thought that was really great. But for, OK, so for people who haven't read the book, it it uh, it has um, a little bit of framing around it, as Samir mentions, but mostly it proceeds kind of chronologically through your life. And the first section is the genesis and Miss Otto Jenny. When you talk about becoming a cricket fan, so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how you became a cricket fan and how that kind of shaped your early experience as a as an Indian cricket fan, quote unquote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, great opening question because I think that opening section is super important in setting up the contrast for what follows. I I became a cricket fan in many ways, you know, like other children of my era listening to the cricket commentary on, you know, on transistor radios of, you know, these test matches, games that went on for five days for six, five and a half hours a day. You know, there were these long, almost, you know, drama pieces that transfixed people in the city. You could see it around you that this was a kind of cultural event, par excellence. You know, it was, it was a shared experience. Everyone out on the streets, at stations everywhere, listening to the commentary, and you know these were the grand entertainments of the day. Um, but my understanding of the game was filtered through a certain kind of lens. I, I was, you know, I, I had a peculiar notion of my sense of identity. I think I, I think that the second word that occurs in that chapter title, misogyny, is a kind of a neologism that I tried to coin to coin the sense I had of. Growing up, you know, perhaps with the classical, diminished sense of the post colonial who is unsure about his cultural inheritance, who has internalized certain feelings perhaps from surrounding discourses that, you know, there's, uh, we are a kind of secondhand version of the real thing. And I think that informed my watching of the game as well, that when I watched the game, I watched it because it gave me access to a world outside of India, not so much because it gave me access to the Indian cricket team. I think that's the kind of, I don't know what to call it, a paradox or a contradiction or a curiosity because when we think about nationalist following a sport or the following of international cricket well allegiances are supposed to be fairly straightforward you cheer for the country of your residence cheer for the country of your birth your citizenship and of course those three things can be uh, different right and i think that was certainly going to be true in my case later on but at that time i was an indian kid growing up in india i should have been cheering for the indian cricket team but i wasn't and of course there's a you know it wasn't that i was i mean Indians around me admired everything international. You know, like I said in the book, you know, the word "abroad" just meant good. Imported meant excellent, right? That was the lexicon with which I grew up. But even then, there was something in my understanding of international sport in general where I just preferred to watch other countries win and other countries beat India as well, right? It, there's a there's there's something quite curious about the nature of my early almost perverse sporting attraction and so i think in those early chapters i think i'm trying to lay this kind of perversity out trying to dissect it trying to understand it trying to track it by by explaining how i understood these early cricket games that i watched and how i watched the early development of my cricketing fantasies and sensibilities constructed largely around you know, around players from other countries where the great triumphs, the great wins were those of other countries. And I think from a kind of a academic or literary point of view, the cricketing literature I read was almost exclusively that written by English and Australian authors. I mean, cricket has an information order. And I was educated by a very particular pantheon, by a very particular canon, of writers and with a very particular kind of you could almost say aesthetic and moral ideology of the game was kind of promulgated to me through that canon, which I imbibed like a like a faithful. I I went to the British Council Library. I read books. I I read the I read uh, you know the, the annual journals. I read the wisdoms. I read the John Play annuals. I read all the famous English and Australian cricket writers. Um, and i was at, and i observed and i absorbed that worldview i internalized it i understood it i made it mine i was yeah it's i think it's a, it was a kind of a process of education of indoctrination you know whatever whatever you want to understand and i think in that chapter 2 i start to track um you know i think some of the some of the changes perhaps right maybe the glimmers of some of those changes that started to emerge but largely yeah. i think in that in Genesis and misogyny is capturing the early roots of those attractions.
1: Yeah, I, well, one of the things I really like about that chapter is, is you do paint, a, a, I think, a really um, evocative picture of how how the kind of hierarchy of cricket shaped your own understanding of yourself, but that also how it kind of laid some of the groundwork for your, your later um, redefinition of yourself. First, you know, the fact that you, you, um, you know, almost supported the Pakistani team over the Indian team in some ways in the context of a household in which your dad was this Air Force officer who'd fought against Pakistan. And he seemed very, he seemed very Catholic about the whole situation with you supporting uh, Pakistan sometimes, (laughs) which. um... Yeah,
0: yeah. And yeah, that's and that was a that was a very important uh, influence in understanding that his attitudes you know, were actually these kinds of, you know, I think that's a wonderful adjective to used to describe him. He was open. He, you know, he, he wanted to see a good game. He wanted to see good play. And, and he had an aesthetic sensibility that, that ran free of those you know, those kinds of nationalist shackles.
1: But then, but then later too, as you, as you uh, attend this boarding school and you realize your own kind of identity within India, as well as, as someone of, uh, Punjabi background and as a Delhi as someone from Delhi later um, that that allows you to kind of appreciate in your Indian identity locally so you start to you start to both there's kind of this weird thing that happens like you're you're you realize okay I'm I'm a Delhi person so I can support players from from my locality and as they perform well internationally I can I can gain esteem and pride from that but then also because you like the Pakistani team for for your, your the reasons that you described um you realize like the critiques of them being posed by the british or the english rather are unfair and so that re- opens the door to you to realize that some of the english critique of the indian team is also unfair which yes. i thought was really yes. interesting how you got there it was yes. like yeah you know.
0: <laughs> yeah i have i am actually very glad you caught that dialectic because i wanted to just say how yeah, how interesting it was that a post-colonial sensibility got tickled because I first get defensive about the Pakistani cricket team and I realized, wait, they'll probably say this about any brown people. And then it hit me that yes, of course, those critiques of the Indian team or those or those kinds of representations of the Indian team matched exactly with that. And that that kind of solidarity in some sense grew in that in that direction as you noticed
1: yeah and it produces i mean not to not to i don't want to jump ahead because i want to get to the world as ours but um it produces in you a kind of um long lifelong tension then as some as someone who the pakistani team played such an important role in your childhood and this realization for you but then you've also had difficulties with that down the road you know with that, with being like oh. You know, that, this is a perverse thing that I did. And of course, there's a historical background to that too. But okay, so th- we can get to that in a second. Something happens in 1983 that shifts your worldview pretty markedly in some ways. Or it seemed like that to me reading. So maybe for the people who haven't read and who aren't cricket tragics, what happened in 1983
0: in cricket um, that made you change um, your view? <laughs> uh, yeah, so in 1983, India won the cricket world cup and um you know the cricket world cup is not as big an event as the football world cup you know the soccer world cup um that is not big as big an event as that but it commands the attention of many people and within the cricketing world it had become a fairly major event it had only started in 1975 so this was the third edition of the world cup and the west indies the, the cricket team from the Caribbean, which represents this kind of um, federation of different Caribbean nations that come together to play cricket, they had won the World Cup for two, um, two, consecutive, uh, two consecutive occasions on both 75 and 79, and they were expected to win in 83. And India, to put it mildly, was not supposed to win the World Cup. Uh, the bookies in London had odds of 60 to 1 against India winning the world cup india's record in the world cup was absolutely dismal um the world cup was you know played in the format of cricket which is which was uh, a kind of exception to the way international cricket was played at the time which was mostly you know the five-day test cricket format and the world cup was played in a shorter format the one-day format where the two teams took turns playing 50 overs one team went first, the other team went second, and if the team batting second made more runs, they won. If they didn't, that's it, the game was over, and the other team had won. It was a simpler format, well well, well suited to the demands of a World Cup, and the Cricket World Cup by 1983 had become a major tournament. And India went into the World Cup, frankly speaking, as, you know, just rank, rank outsiders, and there were plenty of people who thought that India were just there to make up the numbers. I mean, it's... It's kind of hard to capture adequately what their underdog status was, but their underdog status was profound enough that when the tournament started, I had very little interest in the tournament. I was was like, okay, you know, there's this world cricket tournament that's going to happen, and I'm going to pay attention to it because I like watching the West Indies play, and I want to watch, you know, Pakistan play, I have high hopes that Pakistan will do well, but I thought India was just going to go up there, get knocked out early, and that would be the end of it. And then the rest of the tournament could proceed the way it would, you know, without India being present. India just wasn't the sort of team that was present in the latest stages of these tournaments, right? They were the kind of, the early knockout party in some ways. And uh, that's not what happened. Uh, you know, India, India, did well enough in the group games that they qualified for the semifinals and they had ups and downs in the group games. They actually began the World Cup with a huge upset. They beat the West Indies in the first game itself in the in the group stages. They lost to them later, but they beat them in the very first game. And that was actually that was a you know that was a shock result and it should have shocked more people. Of course people thought well it's it's an exception. And sure enough, the next time India played them in the group stage, because teams played each other twice, India lost to them. But India qualified for the semi-final. India won the semifinal. They beat England in England. They went to the final. And they beat the West Indies in the final. And not only did they beat the West Indies in the final, they beat them after having a bad start to the game. One that made it look like, okay, well, you know, that's the end of that magical dream run of this great outsider team and you know now harsh reality is just gonna slap them upside the head and show them that you know well the two champions are here and they're gonna win this cup for the third time and nope india had a bad start and they still won the final so there was something quite i just just statistically i don't know what the right word for it is it was extremely improbable in the sporting sense in all rational understandings of cricket players' forms and their performance in the game and their history and all of that. Um, You know, there were some indications that India had improved in the game. You know, they had pulled off a couple of interesting wins, including one against the West Indies, not just in the World Cup, but in the series before. But I think what was really amazing for me was that my interest in the tournament was was modified. It was transformed as the tournament went on. I became caught up in the fortunes of the team. I noticed myself responding internally. There was a kind of a phenomenology in my reactions to the team, the way that I felt, the way that I was upset or crushed or sad or happy or ecstatic or elated. And I felt like this switch had been thrown and they had kind of disturbed my my older self, something had happened. And I really kind of, you know, I sort of described it as a bit of a conversion experience in the book. And uh, I think I used for, I used metaphors of religious ecstasy and transformation to kind of describe that, you know, not flippantly, but I, I just, I, I really meant it. There was, some, there was some way in which stuff that was happening around you made it possible for me to emotionally arrive at a position that I had not been able to arrive at by just simple, rational, or reasonable deliberation before. Yeah, Something this, just kind of me
1: yeah, this chapter, me across the line. Sorry. I was going to say, this chapter is um, just rich with that kind this is the chapter in which you described going to Nehru Stadium. And I, I read through this whole chapter a kind of tension between um, your earlier ideas. I mean, even if you could reject the idea that okay, maybe the English or the Australians um, don't always live up, like they have these prejudices and they don't always live up to the game, the the best practices of the game. You also seem to kind of be rejecting in this chapter, the idea of the gentleman cricketer itself entirely and realizing like, actually, that's a, again, a kind of colonial imposition because, you know, the, the English or the Australians, if they act, don't act like gentlemen, that's, that's still allowed. But if, you know, uh, subaltern does that. Suddenly, that becomes dangerous, and um, so you're you're kind of rejecting that, and and at the same time accepting this kind of you know emotional and visceral bodily experience. And then I was thinking, you know what, Samir was like a, a old, you know teenager, almost getting into his like all of this was coming together at the same time. I could just imagine it. You know that that age, that time, that moment, and how. How transformative it! Of course, it had to have been because of all those things, right?
0: Very much so. Yeah, you know, I think uh, you're noticing its its location is adolescence is something that I don't comment on explicitly. I don't, for example, say that I'm, you know, I mean, it's perhaps implicit there in some of my notions of you know some of my confusions about masculinity and how that's wrapped up in the notion of you know what the Indian curriculum should be could be right. There's a kind of a post-colonial. Emasculated, um, you know, uh, emasculated post-colonial as well, but I think I think it's there in that game or in that World Cup, which was that there was this international stage, there was this place, there was this hallowed ground, this thing that was not supposed to be occupied by the subaltern, not supposed to be occupied by the post-colonial, and we went out there, and you know, here's me using the word we, uh, <laughs> and. <laughs> And, and, you know, and, and the team did it or we did it. And I think I made it we because that's the first time I felt that we connection. And I really felt that it was, it was amazing that it happened in cricket uh, or in England in those grounds that were part of cricketing history. So there was some of that. You know, some of the presentation of the game, it was broadcast live on BBC. There were English commentators who were commentating on the game. So they had to describe Indian glory. They had to, right? It was almost like it was it was almost like we had English servers at the banquet. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yes, if if there was a place to win the World Cup, it was here in England in this particular setting. And you know, uh, I you know I, I try to capture it in that in that chapter that you know there's there's this way in which cricketing history was framed in a particular way. It took place in certain grounds, in certain balconies with certain kinds of images visible in those photographs. And It was almost like we had taken those photographs and placed Indian cricketing achievement there, and you know, it it I, as a result, I think that achievement became you know, became historical in a way that it wouldn't have been if it, if it had happened somewhere else, right? So for me especially, the game taking place where it did, and, you know, and in India beat the West Indies, which was, you know, a cricketing superpower, uh, you know, quite possibly cricket's most successful, charismatic, and, you know, uh, accomplished uh, cricketing outfit. So it's not like we beat some, like, you know, second-eleven, Yeah, yeah, one associated with their
1: hyper-masculinity too, like, you know. Yes, yes, yes. They're going to bowl you and you're afraid, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, very much so, very much so. And I still think that the opening hour and a half of that final against the West Indies is is just, you know, it's just such um, high-tension cricket because everything is just kind of hanging on a knife edge and it's just, it's just very intense cricket to watch. And, um, you know, and they kind of came through that, you know, they stumbled, you know, they had a bad start. Like I said, they were dismissed for a low score, but that they came back and miraculously won it. And, you know, they won it through some amazing cricket as well. And, and then in the end, you know, there was that kind of, there's that kind of stampede across the ground where all the fans rushed onto the, Onto the field. I thought that there's something quite intensely symbolic about that because I'd only seen that happen at English cricket grounds when, you know, when, when, when like English teams won, or later in the 70s when, you know, West Indian fans started going to English cricket grounds and they would sometimes rush the ground when their team would win. And, you know, the West Indies had toured England in 73 and 76 and they had beaten England in England. And their fans, who were West Indian immigrants, who lived in, you know, in in London, you know, who lived in places like Brixton, you know, they would come out and fill the stands and they use the West Indian team as symbols of, you know, their post-colonial pride and aggression and, you know, their sense of, um, you know, I mean, you know, it was black, black power manifest on the ground. And I wasn't, I was dimly, you know, I had I had seen that history visually enacted because I'd seen photographs of captains of the West Indies going up onto the pavilions of these English cricket grounds and cracking open bottles of champagne. And, you know, these, you know, these Caribbean crowds, just like colorful, passionate, just, just, just coming up and celebrating with their teams. And, you know, they, they were immigrants to a racially conflicted England. And, you know, for them this black beautiful team had come and s- spoken up for them you know giving them you know real real pride in their in their standing in English society and I think and I think just for us you know located elsewhere uh, even outside England and you know especially for the Indians living in England there was something similar there was there was this sense that the, you know, the Indian team had come and they had won in England. They had, and they had suddenly, you know, they had suddenly put a pep in your step. They had stiffened up your spine. You know, you could walk around. You know, you suddenly had bragging rights. Um, you know, I, I only learned this years and years, almost 15, 20 years later that at Old Trafford during the, uh, after the end of the final some, you know, some, some drunken English uh, cricket fans who were, you know, you know, behaving in loud, toxic, and uh, hooliganish ways had actually attacked some Indian cricket fans after the game. But I, you know, I, I didn't know any of this um, when I was actually watching the game on television. For me, at that time, it was just—it was just this, this kind of amazing. You know, having this aesthetic sensibility, almost like you know, to use this language, like you'd been trained on a certain set of images, and now that vision was receiving new images that had something to do with the old but they were radically different and they changed my sense of what the game was and what it could be.
1: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart. With our fighting spirit we don't just fight battles we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown and through adaptable problem solving we do just that learn more at marines.com Yeah and I don't want to I don't want to belabor this chapter so I'd like to move on to the others but this is a really rich chapter too for your um, for your understanding of the Pac- Pakistan India relationship um, with the emergence of the Punjab problem and so for people who are who are reading who are interested in reading the book there's also that background as well, so it's not just about your relationship as an Indian to, um, you know, the the England and this kind of colonial, but also your relationship with other um, post-colonial um, states. Yes, so. yes,
0: very much. So. I, I, in fact, the the relationship with Pakistan is, in many ways, was a. Was a very strong inspiration for writing the book, and I and I think it's actually one of the dominant threads in the book. If, if, yeah, if, it um,
1: becomes it yeah. becomes especially dominant in your in your crossing the Black Water, which is that an Amitav Ghosh reference? But um, it's 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 really prominent in that chapter when you go to the U.S. Yes. and you start to build yes. your cricket network there. So I wonder if you can tell us about um, you know coming to the U.S. as a cricket as a cricket uh, tragic and as an Indian cricket fan. Um, And as an as a as an immigrant and as an exile, so you can tell us a little bit about how cricket helped you or not build a network and how it helped change your perspective there.
0: Yeah. You know, I think uh, that chapter crossing the black water, you know, that's you know, that's um, that's my my migration to the U.S., which started as it often does for many Indian immigrants by coming to the United States for graduate school. And, you know, knowing at some level that I was going to a country in which cricket was not played or, you know, available in some ways and it playing a role in my feeling disconnected from life back home because there wasn't any cricket, right? Um, But, of course, there was, you know, it was only one part of my many dislocations in the U.S. And I think in that chapter, I tried to capture that sense of what it was like you know, to show up in the inner city of Newark in 1987, only 20 years after the riots of the late 1960s, you know, that city, you know, one that was, you know, struggling with a pretty, you know, with a pretty devastated inner city, which is still in many ways the the same way. And um, dealing with the challenges of going to graduate school there in a city and a campus that featured, I would say a great deal of racial resentment and conflict. You know, this was the year when the you know the dot busters were expressing considerable amount of i would say racial resentment and hatred against indian immigrants in that part of the you know of the eastern seaboard so there was that there was as those early conflict written days i think i tried to capture some of that some of that feeling some of that feeling of being a little bit harried a little under the gun for sure um, yeah yeah you know and um you know Cricket was available, you know. We watched the Cricket World Cup in 1987 because we managed to get our hands on a satellite link. You know, some enterprising graduate students, you know, put that together, and then a couple of years later, you know, began my great adventure by following cricket on the internet. You know, (laughs) with early scores and the and you know the early Usenet news groups where cricket fans congregated and talked away. And I, you know, that honestly became my primary conduit for interacting with the game for you know for quite a long time and i think that's why that chapter is as long as it is and i think it's i think that chapter in its own ways is a kind of contribution to the history of the internet through the history of these online communities through the kinds of spaces they created through the kinds of discourse they facilitated and didn't facilitate for you know i i do think there was a way in which my relationship with pakistani cricket and pakistani um you know cricket fans changed and that was because i had virtual online electronic interactions with them and the ways in which fans talked with each other online was had its good sides and its bad sides there yeah. was a lot of i,
1: I yeah. was really struck in this chapter by the by the fact that both this community of of pakistani cricket fans and indian cricket fans you know often had to take to the internet because they were displaced from their homes uh, you know where they where they were born and so they had to bump into each other much more often and they worked together to, to uh, produce this cricket culture in the U S but it actually caused a lot of tension at the same time. So it was a very weird kind of, um, you know, I don't want to call it's not love, hate, but it was, I think probably a common ex- enough experience for immigrants, uh, overseas. You have to work with other immigrants, but sometimes it makes you not like other immigrants very much.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think the, the certain kinds of conflict were facilitated certain kinds of i think certain kinds of connections were made right so and i think based upon the kinds of agendas that emerged in those discussions people sometimes you know took up stances you know which they might not have adopted in 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 say face to face communication and I do think that even in the book, I try to capture some of the tension between the kinds of face-to-face interactions that I had with Pakistanis or the kinds of online interactions I had with them and how these spaces actually reflected a fairly complicated dynamic because you had English fans on them, Australian fans on them. You had fans from New Zealand. And so, you know, there was a fairly... I think a kind of a multidimensional dialectic where some fans connected with each other because they supported the same team. Sometimes they reacted with annoyance or irritation to the antics of other fans and other kinds of alliances formed. Sometimes subgroups of fans would form, right? People would notice yeah. that they got on better with a few people and they would form these little side groups, right? That you could use. Um, so I think, in, I think in those chapters, I have tried to capture some of the sense of how the game's, was this kind of was this kind of presence in our lives where you watched it on computer terminals and you went into these ethnic neighborhoods to watch on televisions and you sort of exchanged news and chat with other expats that the whole sense of following a game that was not really you know visible or available in other avenues of of American life was quite a unique and distinctive experience you know in my early I would say a dozen or so years in, uh, you know, in New Jersey and New York. Well,
1: I was definitely struck by the 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 kind of um, lengths, sometimes literal <laughs> lengths, that you had to go in order to find. Um, there, there's a lot of kind of, you know, intentionally and unintentionally kind of funny moments in the chapter. Whether it's the first. Um, you know, you, you all got that satellite hookup and you all paid ten dollars to get it. And when the Pakistani team was knocked out, they tried to get their money back and the Indians were no, no, no. And then when the Indians were knocked out, they tried to get their money back and turnabout was fair play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, exactly. you know, Yeah, there's a lot of I mean it really it really um it really struck as a kind of as as a kind of um I don't know, there's a there's a there's a French term, you know, like a system day, you know, you have to make do make do as best you can to be a cricket fan. At yes. The time. Yeah. But also that it one and maybe this was intentional on your part or, or not. But it, this was another it read for me like another moment where you were really challenging the kind of old world of cricket, because before, who could be the person who could write and talk about cricket? Well, it was the people that you were reading um, as a younger kid and now all of a sudden you have all these online forums and these english and australians because maybe they have um for whatever reason they were often in charge of kind of moderation and they're trying to shut out the indian and pakistani voices because they're taking over i mean because those yeah, are the yeah. biggest groups of fans and it struck yeah. me really it's also a kind of story of like um you know uh the the new the new center of the cricket world emerging in these kind of popular. In these kind of popular groups but as you, as you rightly point out um, one that was because of the nature of the internet and i know you talk about um in some of your other work the kind of nature of online mediated experience but um the the nature of the internet could be both productive and extremely unproductive mm-hmm. and toxic
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah very much so very much so and i think you know you're right to seize upon that that dimension of the cricketing interaction online, which is that there was a sense of spaces that might have been expected to have featured certain kinds of discussions on certain kinds of subjects conducted in certain kinds of ways, found those expectations dashed because of the presence of all these fans who came from other cricketing cultures and who had other ways of experiencing and understanding the game. So I think the online spaces saw some of those early conflicts, which later on became emblematic of, you know, wider conflicts within the cricket world that, you know, people experienced and understood the game in different ways. And they had different reasons for watching the game and for, and for what they got out of the game. And I think there is something very interesting about the Indian dimension to this, which is that India is a kind of, you know, India does supply just by sheer numbers of, you know, population and it's, and it's financial stakes in the game a huge fan base a huge television audience a huge television rights deals and in some ways its fans are you know the underwriters of the of of the game in 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 many significant ways so part of this book is also i think in some ways trying to illustrate the you know one slice of this important animating force behind world cricket and and showing some of its, some of its dimensions or facets in these spaces where you know a lot of fans continue to talk and negotiate and and you know discuss cricket with each other on, you know on um, on modern social uh, social media spaces, for instance.
1: I'd I'd love to. I mean. I on I feel like I should I should stop in on the Australian chapter. Although I have to admit, when I was reading it, I was just kind of living in all the spaces you were living in because I'm like oh, I've been there, oh yeah, that place. Because I lived I lived in Darlinghurst on Boundary Street um, for a while when I first moved here, so I was walking up to SCG all the time, going to all the hotels. Although I've only been to I've I've been to cricket there a few times, the Ashes twice, and some of the um, uh, kind of local comps, but I um, mostly went there for AFL. Unfortunately, ah. <laughs> but I just um, do the Swans. Yeah. Well, when I when I moved here, most of my colleagues are Milburnian, so they said, you know, oh, you got to pick an AFL team, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> so I was living right almost in the shadow of the SCG, and with my wife and I bought season tickets and would go there all the time and sit in the members, and yeah, but. Um, I went a few. I've gone a few times to cricket there, including to the Ashes to see. But I didn't go to see the, um, I didn't go to see the most recent India test uh, in in Sydney. But I should have. <laughs>
0: uh, yes, but, yes, of course, of course.
1: I I, I love the because I don't want to take up too much of your time. And I, you have a really rich kind of last chapter, um, brave new pitch, which in which you and since you brought it up, I think move that way maybe. In that chapter, you kind of talk about how you've engaged with global cricket since the new millennium, since about 2004. And one of the things you talk about is the rise of the BCCI and why you think that was invisible to you at the time and how that's reshaped the global game. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, who, for people who aren't cricket uh, uh, fans, who the BCCI is and why was it maybe invisible to you and now um what it means for the global game well
0: uh the, yeah the bcci is the board for cricket control in india it's the it's the controlling uh, organization the one that gets to the one that gets to as it were, run the game in india and you know pick the indian team and so on and so forth um uh, it is now the most powerful organization in world cricket just because it has it, it, it runs the game in the, um, you know, the game, with the largest fan base, the game, uh, and it has the largest television rights deals. And, you know, since India became involved in the management of the game from the 1980s onwards, cricket's financial fortunes, you know, which had been in the doldrums for a while, had taken a bit of an upswing with the, with the introduction of the one-day game in the 1970s and 1980s really received a kind of gigantic boost once satellite television came to india once cricket games could be broadcast to much larger audiences advertisers realized they had access to these eyeballs and so the board of cricket control suddenly found itself sitting on top of an extremely valuable property right that's what i think <laughs> i think that's what media types so that's what uh, commercial advertising types would call this that they were in they were sitting on a gold mine they had access to the you know the nation's most popular game, and they could sell its television rights, um, and it became the most powerful cricketing organization in the world. And its finances, in many ways, dominate cricketing administration worldwide. You know, the BCCI runs a very rich cricketing league, which is a domestic Indian cricket league, but which employs international stars. Um, which is structured around the shortest version of the game, and it has huge amounts of money, and those those monies are so um, are in many ways so you know discordant with the salaries that some international players get in their home countries, which are not as financially prosperous as um, as as India is. Is that it changes their playing priorities? It it makes them prefer. You know, the shorter version of the game over service with the national teams. Steve Smith,
1: of course, here in Sydney, uh, went over and played last season in Indian Premier League and didn't play in Sydney. Couldn't come back in time to play in the final, and people were a little miffed. But when you look at the money, you're like, this is this this guy's job. What do you
0: want him to do? (laughs) I mean, you know, these guys are professionals. They have to take care of their families. And... uh, you know, I think, um, in, you know, that book of mine, "Brave New Pitch," which is, you know, by the way, a separate book. I this this chapter is uh, kind of a tribute to that book in some ways by using its title as a chapter for the book. But that explores the effects of that new of that new economic structure on the modern game. And I think in this chapter, what I tried to capture was my reaction to these changes in the game. My my reactions to the way that I perhaps discovered a new dimension in my relationship to the game because, you know, critiques of the BCCI were in many ways justified, in many ways absolutely spot on. I was also a critic of them. But at the same time, there was this, you know, there was in my, in my mind, and I think, you know, there was a sense in which the changing of the guard, the changing of the old guard in cricket was just an event that I think induced a great deal of discomfort. I think induced a great deal of cu- cultural discomfort. And I think it, it underwrote some of the reactions to the BCCI, it underwrote some of the reactions to the Indian cricket team and the presence of the Indian cricket fan. Um, to, and to I not think-
1: To find a point on it, I mean, I think you're being very generous, that, but to, to just to say that there are English and Australian cricketers who and cricket fans who didn't like the idea of uh, Indians running Global cricket. I mean, that's more or less. I think that's
0: right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I, yeah, and, and I think you know, no matter how fair the critiques of you know some of the noble-ish sensibilities or some of the inefficiencies, the game was the game was financially poorly run before. I think I think uh, you know the the first World Cup to show profit was the one that was organized on in the Indian subcontinent, and I think the game really became much more financially stable though it has many challenges even now and i would say that you know the, the game's finances are skewed <clears throat> which does put a great responsibility upon the bcci to be responsible stewards of the game but i do think there is straightforwardly a kind of colonial and i think hold over a kind of sensibility which is simply not comfortable with this notion and which i think is you know it's used to cricket being run in a particular way and which has you know which i think was initially not comfortable with certain kinds of changes that were visible in in the ways that the game was run and played
1: yeah i mean that really comes through in this chapter where you you know it, it because the book's autobiographical right you can by the time we get here we're kind of getting to you in the now um, or the more nowish <laughs> But, um, you know, it's clear we can, as a reader, I think, can see that you are now more identifying with this kind of aggressive and assertive, um, you know, Indian cricketing identity that's both uh, productive on the field, and especially you talk about, you know, the 2021 um, victory in Australia, but also, um, you know, as a steward of the game that has new directions for maybe how to make cricket cricket successful. And so I do wonder, you know, is that a fair one? Is that a fair reading from me? But also to then, as as a kind of expert, because you've been writing um, about this, if you count on the internet since the 1980s. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But w- what is the future of cricket? Then are we looking at more twenty twenties, one day internationals, uh, women's? Cr- I mean, I know the ICC women's cricket is on right now. Like, what is the future yeah. of cricket?
0: You know, I, it's, It's an interesting question because I think uh, in the years of the pandemic, I think cricket's challenges became more apparent, right? How to, how to sell a game, which really does, you know, gets a lot of money from television rights, but didn't have an audience at this, you know, at at the stadium, um, which is still relatively limited in its global footprint and is overly dependent, I would say on the, on the interests of, of, you know, of one cricketing nation, which is India, though it's played with a great deal of passion and um, in, in many other countries. I do think the shorter forms of the game will generate a lot of revenue for the game. But I think cricket is in a very interesting transition phase where I think there are many, many fans. I think the imagination of the best cricket fan is what has generated much of the aura of cricket, much of the immense cricketing literature and the realms of, I think, fantastic spaces that surround cricket fans' imaginations. And in many ways, some of the most successful international cricketers in the shorter formats grew their reputations in the longer formats of the game. So I think we're kind of in this transition phase where I think the limited overs games will become more important. But I think there is is a way in which cricket might be able to make the transition to the longer form because it does entrance those who get into it it does you know it does, does still manage to provide a forum for na- for the expression of nationalist sentiment in very interesting and dramatic ways which i think are unmatched by other forms of the game sometimes so i actually must confess to saying that i'm not i'm not sure what the future of cricket is i know india England and Australia and, you know, the other countries, the other uh, countries will have a great deal to say in its future revolution. But I do think it will depend a great deal upon whether, you know, cricket can bring along newer fans while ensuring that those who have a certain kind of investment in its, its longer forms are, are done justice to. Firstly, I think the money that limited overs <clears throat> forms of the game bring into cricket could be used to usefully subsidize just cricket. Right, as a form of homage to a form of the game, which is, you know, really responsible for people in the limited overs forms of the game being able to make as much money as they did, right? Because they had that kind of cricketing fan base to call upon, which was created by Test Cricket. <coughs> Pardon me.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, I think it's an interesting moment for cricket. And I'm anxious to see what happens. Although I have to say, it'll be, it'll, it'll be people like you and not people like me who, I'm, I'm a cricket, um, I'm a cricket novice, but I, I do enjoy it and I enjoy watching the tests and I enjoy watching the one, one day formats. Um, Samir, uh, I, the last question I always ask is what do we have forward to looking, um, what can we look forward to from you next? I, I don't know if you're, if you have any more cricket, uh, projects up your sleeve or if you're Working more uh, in your in your other work in philosophy and in technology, so I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that, or you can just say, "Oh, pandemic." I haven't had time to think about this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well, uh, funnily enough, I had a couple of books come out last year. You know, there were all these various writing projects with, which sort of crossed the finish line in the same year last year. So, I wrote a couple of books on the movies uh, last year. I wrote a book on the Indian film director Sham Benegal, which has come out with Bloomsbury on a series on philosophical filmmakers. And then I wrote a book for HarperCollins in India, which is about the Indian war movie. Um, it's kind uh, of uh, exploring the Indian popular imagination as, as expressed through the Bollywood war movie. So, you know, I've always been a fan of the movies and I've always wanted to write books on movies. So these rep- you know, these books represent my forays into that domain. And um, these days I am actually writing a book um, on anxiety, on, um, it's a kind of a philosophical guide to anxiety, um, exploring the writings of, you know, the existentialists uh, and uh, psychoanalysis and those kinds of things. So yeah, um, fair <laughs> uh, a fair range of subjects.
1: Well, it comes through in your it comes through in this book too. Um, you can tell you have an an, a, an eclectic uh, sense of of taste and interests. Um, that's and your ability to write about them all is a- enviable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you.
1: All right, um, you've been listening to New Books in Sports, a chat uh, channel on the New Books Network. We've been here with. Samir Chopra, who's a professor of philosophy at Brooklyn College and at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And he's also the author of the book we've been talking about. It's really rich um, and exciting. It's called The Evolution of a Cricket Fan, My Shape-Shifting Journey. It's out from Temple University Press in 2021. Thank you for joining us, Samir. Thank you so much for
0: having me on, Keith. I really enjoyed this conversation
1: and uh i i'm keith rathbone and i'm coming to you from macquarie university in sydney australia thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day